Hopefully you remembered to fix your clocks. I suppose the people that aren't here that didn't remember, right? It's, it's amazing um, that we're already in spring, isn't it? Like 54 days until summer. Like it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, man, time flies. If you were here um, at the beginning of the year, we spent nearly the first half of the year going through what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, literally spent probably the first half of the year unpacking that as a church together. Um, it's a famous sermon. It's a, located in the very first book of the New Testament called Matthew. Now, you may not have been here for that. You may not have been here for the Sermon on the Mount uh, as we journeyed through that together. Or you might have, but either way, what I want to do this morning is actually look at the Sermon on the Mount just briefly for a moment. So some of you are already tracking along <clears throat> as Ezra just read. So look, look at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So Ezra read in chapter 8, which is a good reading there, brother. But, but look, right before chapter 8, there, there's something here that is important. It's, it's, it's something important that we have to see about Jesus. It says, right, so Jesus has spent all this time teaching, right? And then look at how Matthew sort of narrate, gives a narration. Like, it, um, you ever notice when you read a book, you've got characters and they're operating, they're doing things? And then the narrator gives an interpretation of it. D does that make sense? Like, and that's why she never loved him. Or, or whatever, right? Do you know what I mean? And, and, and so that's, that's what, after Jesus delivers the whole Sermon on the Mount, then Matthew gives an interpretation of it. Look what he says. He says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, that's everything he said, chapters 5 and 6 and 7, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had, what's the word? Authority, right? And not as their scribes. So the crowds here are gobsmacked by his authority. And in the next two chapters, we'll see that this authority is in action. Matthew has laid before us in chapters 5 through 7 a picture of Jesus' teaching. He's given us the Lord's words of life. And now, beginning here in chapter 8 through 9, he's going to show us Jesus' deeds of power so that his words and his deeds are laid side by side. I guess a simple way of putting it is this. Chapters 5 through 7 are the words of Jesus. Chapters 8 through 9 are the works of Jesus. So chapters 5 through 7, words of Jesus, 8 through 9, works or deeds of Jesus. But, but what kind of works exactly? What kind of deeds? What, what is this? Why, why, and why put it here? Well, this morning there's three. Matthew loves numbers. He's an accountant, right? Or was. So I don't like numbers. I didn't like math. No way not my thing, but Matthew loves numbers. He's a nerd. 
So, no offense, Rob Wright. So, Matthew loves numbers, particularly the number three. In our text before us, we see three people that Jesus encountered, right? There's a leper, a soldier, and a mother-in-law. And then there's demon-possessed people. Not, don't put those together. Mother-in-laws aren't demon-possessed. <laughs> right? But, yes, not always. <laughs> no comment. So we've got three people, three events, and three different locations. So it's three. You know, it, and, and in case you're wondering, well, this is some bizarre literary thing that Matthew's on about. We still see three come up in writing today. My kids love it when I read the three little pigs, right? Or the three little kittens who lost their mittens, right? Or the three billy goats gruff, right? And it goes on and on and on. That said, in our text before us, same thing. Lo and behold, there's, there's a set of three. Look with me here. Just, you even didn't see the headings in your Bible. Look at these three events and see if you can discover a theme here. First, Jesus heals a leper. Second, Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And third, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law which is probably fair to conclude that Matthew wants to draw attention to Jesus' healing, right? Especially if the layout is different in the other Gospels, like Luke and Mark, which it is. But why do this? What's the point to it all? Why, why the three and why the heal, healing bang, bang, bang? Matthew intends for us to see Jesus as the healing Messiah. You see, our gaze is meant to fall not on the miracles themselves, but on the miracle worker, on the Lord Jesus himself. We're meant not to see that, see, we're meant to see that Jesus Christ is completely trustworthy, friends. We're, that he alone is worthy of us relying on him and giving ourselves over to him. One of the things you see when the kingdom of God breaks in in the Gospel of Matthew is a picture of a reversing of the fall. Why do we have sickness and death? And, 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 and oh, because of germs. Why do we have germs? Why is it that everyone in this room one day will, will die? Even though those of us that are healthy and young and strong now will come to an end. Ultimately, it's because it's going all the way back to in the beginning when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Disease and sickness and death entered into the world. And so as the Messiah comes on the scene and the kingdom of God is breaking upon now, you see a reversal of that. It's not fully what it will finally be in the new heavens and new earth, but you see a there's a little picture, a foreshadow of that. He's the healing Messiah. So that's what we're going to look at, is those three examples of a leper, a soldier, and a mother-in-law. And it's interesting because with every one of those, I, I believe there's something for us to see both big picture-wise Matthew's laying out for us. Remember I've told you that Matthew is where the Old and the New Testament meet, and I don't mean that simply in our paperback Bibles, but I mean the overall sweep of redemptive history. Matthew reaches back into the Old Testament and then points forward, showing us perfectly who, who this 
Son of God is, Son of David, Son of Abraham, King Jesus. So now that King Jesus, that's sort of laid out in those four chapters, and now King Jesus has taught, how is King Jesus going to act? What is he going to do? We get to see his character a bit. So that said, that's where we're headed, is this idea of the healing Messiah. Now, before we look at those three, let's, let's look to the Lord quickly in, in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, we pray that as you worked miracles, as your kingdom was being preached and people were amazed at your authority, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would cause us yet again to be amazed at who you are, to be amazed at your grace. Lord, would you show us our sin and yet show us your redeeming work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever felt shunned by a group of people before. Maybe you've experienced this at school, particularly if you're in high school right now. Those of you in high school, maybe you can identify with this. You know from experience when a group of friends, for whatever reason, just because maybe it's bullying or they're just a bunch of jerks or whatever, they want to exclude you. And, and And they're being mean to you and they might post comments on Facebook or they might, you know, gossip when you're not around or whatever it might be. You know that being excluded stinks, right? It's lonely. It hurts. Those of you that can even remember being back to a teenager, right? Um, I didn't intentionally look one way to the room, by the way. <laughs> you know, but um, you know that it's, it's not fun, is it? It's not fun to be excluded. It's not fun to feel like you're all on, all on your own. But that's only a small taste of what it would have been like to living in the ancient world as a leper. You know, leprosy was a visible disease which led to a scaliness of the skin. It was a disease that led to the death of nerve cells. The, the skin no longer has tactile sensitivity. It no longer feels pain or touch. And the skin itself really begins to, to die and look repulsive. There, there are, there's even a, a rancid smell that, that would sort of be a, come with it often. <laughs> Essentially, the person with it that had leprosy, or we might call, call it the Hansen's disease, slowly wasted away, and people even died of this. So beyond, though, the physical sort of distress that leprosy would cause, it would also cause you psychological distress. If you read back in the book of Leviticus, it prescribes how to treat someone with this disease. They were to be outcasts. They, you, you could see them coming a mile away. Their clothes were to be torn, their hair hanging loose, and people would cry out, or they would even cry out, unclean, unclean! They're the type of people, you, you want to have them on the other side of the street. Don't get near them. What a terrible life of, of being ostracized. Nobody talks to you and nobody even gets near you. 
Now imagine for a moment that's your lot in life. And you can't go to the GP to have it fixed. You're going to stay in this awful circumstance until you die. And likely you'll die alone, by the way. But then one day, from a distance, you overhear people talking about a Jewish man who's got a reputation of healing people. So a few weeks later, as you're struggling along, you look up, and there on this Galilean hillside is this bloke talking to people. And there's this massive mob all around him. They're crowded in. It seems as if he's teaching them. Suddenly it dawns on you. That must be this Jewish healer everybody's talking about. And then as you're standing there at the bottom of this hill, your eyes begin to make out that the mob is actually headed your way. They're following Jesus. Pick up with me in chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Again, let's, let's not forget the dire situation here of this leper. He literally was an outcast that no one dared to get near, let alone touch. On the whole, people would have thought that he was cursed by God for having leprosy. So imagine that. Even today, when you're sick, people will empathize with you. Oh, I'm so sorry. Even people that are nasty people will at least feel bad for someone that's dying of cancer. But imagine living in a society where if you contracted something, because leprosy was very infectious, that people would brand you as cursed. You deserve to have that. You're cursed. And then they not avoid you. Imagine, I mean, we can't even relate to that. And so here comes Jesus down the mountainside. And this guy who's in this circumstance approaches him. And it's interesting, we'll see in just a moment, that Jesus heals the centurion's servant from a distance. Did you catch that when Ezra was reading? Jesus didn't say, oh, well, where is he at, you know? I need to have this, if I'm going to be doing this healing crusade, he needs to be standing right here in front of me. No, Jesus actually heals him from a distance. So you would think if, if you don't want to touch these people, lepers, that Jesus could sort of stand back from a distance and say, healed, <laughs> whatever, right? And yet, what does he do? What does he do? He shows compassion. He places his hand on him. How long would it have been since this leper had felt human touch, even from his own family? And here we see Jesus graciously reaching out and touching the untouchable. Look at verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, 
saying, I will be clean. And after going to the GP and getting some proper, and the chemist, he was healed. But it took about six weeks. Is that what it says? No. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. It's interesting because if someone had a disease like leprosy that was eating away at their skin, literally the skin was turning scaly and wrinkled and their eyes were sinking into their face and they had bandages for where their skin was barely hanging on the bone, if somebody in this condition were cleansed, it would immediately be apparent, would it not? And remember the masses that are trailing behind Jesus? We see that in chapter 8, verse 1, right? It's not a small crowd. The masses are following, trailing behind Jesus. So this miracle wasn't performed in some dark alley somewhere, in secret. It was in front of everybody, which gives testimony to Jesus' divinity. It backs up his claim to be the Savior, the Messiah of his people. You see, in this event, Matthew is showing us that the Lord has power over disease, even over the, the worst of diseases, the plague of his time. Jesus touches this man and heals him in an instant. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. He is the healing Messiah. How beautiful is that? Now, I don't want to throw a wet blanket on it, but I will. But doesn't, doesn't Leviticus 13 and 14, because remember, we, we went through, we spent one Sunday on Leviticus, which I don't expect you to remember that. But, but one of the things that Leviticus talks about is there's clean and there's unclean, right? So it's, very, it's like if, the, if God is going to dwell with his people, there needs to be clean, there needs to be a separation. But in Leviticus 13 and 14, it says that if someone touches an unclean leper, they're defiled. I mean, if you and I lived back then and we had touched this leper, we would have been considered ceremonially unclean. So by touching this guy, wouldn't Jesus himself become defiled then? And what do you think? Well, what does the text say? Again, in verse 3, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean, and immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Instead of Jesus being defiled, the man was cleansed. The power of Jesus to cleanse is greater than the power of leprosy. Far from becoming defiled, Jesus makes the unclean clean. Both Jesus' word and touch are powerful. That's the kind of power he has over disease and sickness. And notice Jesus even cares about his social integration back into society. It's peculiar how he says, go, go to the priest and offer the gift Moses prescribed. There's a couple of different takes on that verse, but it could just be that he actually cares about, because again, you could say, well, I'm cleansed now. I'm clean. 
You know that Jewish healer guy cruising around? He killed me. Yeah, right. You have leprosy. You see, he's now able to be integrated back into society. Jesus showed compassion on this man. Not only physically, but psychologically, socially. Rather than getting away from him and and sort of having a distance from him or putting on rubber gloves before he touched him. Didn't have rubber gloves back then. But he shows compassion. Now, church friends, let me ask you this. Do you have the same kind of compassion for those who are outcasts that Jesus had? He saw this leper and he had compassion for him. He wanted this man to be made whole. Is that your heart this morning? Do you have the same kind of love for the unlovely, for the outcast, for the socially ostracized? We should. If the love of the Lord Jesus is in us, we ought to have that kind of love, that type of practical, caring love. And though we can't heal with a touch and with a word like Jesus, we can minister in his name, you see. Think of a type of person that's someone you avoid a, quote, leper, as it were. Someone maybe this week, what's a way that you can show compassion to them? Who's someone maybe you sit next to on the bus or the train going into work or someone that you see walking down the street? Who's someone that in your life that is repulsive to you? Maybe he's treated you poorly. Maybe he treated you poorly intentionally. Can you have compassion on that person? Well, friends, listen. If the Lord is working in your life and changing you from the inside out, you can. You can see them through the lens that Jesus sees them. Not perfectly. Not perfectly like the Lord. But the Lord is working in your life, allowing you to be compassionate. Now, this next episode focuses, and your Bible's there if you look, it's on another outsider. He is unclean in a different way. Not by an infectious skin disease, but on racial or ethnic grounds. He is a Gentile. And not just any Gentile, but a Roman centurion of all things. Probably doesn't really ring a bell for you. You're like, the Roman centurion. I don't know if you've ever seen Man in the High Castle. This whole, I hate counterfactuals. I hate what-ifs. The Allied troops beat the Nazis. Praise God. Okay? But if they didn't, there would be a world under Hitler, really. Now, that's a counterfactual. It's not true. But someone thought of that idea and made a whole TV series called Man in the High Tower, where, like, we, so we, we're trying to the Australians and the Americans and Canadians, we're all trying to sort of figure out how to get on now that Hitler's in charge. Now, I say all of that because that will, that's sort of what it's like to be a Jew back in Jesus' day where the Romans are in charge. They're oppressing you. They're not people you want to submit to. You're seeing them as nasty, as, as, as people outside of your whole worldview and value system. And a Roman centurion... 
he's a guy that sort of makes sure that you're going to keep Roman law. He, he has about 100 soldiers under him. And a Roman centurion um, w- was a guy who really, he is a guy who is the military backbone throughout the Roman Empire. Their job was to maintain discipline and order. And often they did so in a very ruthless manner. Again, we're, we're Westerners, and so it's hard for us to understand this, but we've never really, probably most of us in this room, have never really been oppressed by another government and sort of micromanaged by these police, as it were. This is kind of like the Gestapo of the day. And, and so the centurion, now it's interesting, an outsider, someone unclean, as it were, comes to Jesus And the emphasis here is on ethnic or racial identity. I mean, don't get me wrong, yeah, Jesus still demonstrates his authority to heal, but there's another story sort of tucked within this. There's another message tucked within this little event here. And that is, the people of God are no longer defined by Jewish ethnicity, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you remember when I first started here, I started going through the Gospel of Matthew. And when I started doing that, one of the things that we saw <coughs> is the genealogy. That's how the whole Gospel gets kicked off, right? Which is a peculiar way to start a Gospel account of Jesus particularly like a really Jewish one. But that's why he names all the big dogs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? But then, I don't know if you remember this, Matthew starts listing all of these rat bags in the genealogy and all of these non-Jews in the genealogy. Do you guys remember that? And then what happens after that? Well, when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, who are the people that come to worship Jesus? Is it the Jews? No. No, it's these pagan astrologers from another country who actually bow before Jesus and present gifts to him. It's not the Jerusalemites who do that. It's not the religious leaders. It is these outsiders coming in that same theme is being picked up again now. You have an outsider, Gustavo kind of guy, right? Coming to Jesus, and you think Jesus would say, get out of here. And you're going to see in chapter 15 that it says a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus. Same sort of idea, this outsider. But look at the response here. This is really interesting. When he entered Capernaum, A satyrian came to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, 
go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. It's interesting here. Did you see that response that he gives in verse 8? So this centurion, as I mentioned, not the kind of guy that you want to hold up as an, an exemplar. Right? Not, not, um, not someone you'd pick out of a crowd for being spiritually sensitive, as it were. Nevertheless, this dude comes to Jesus because his servant, possibly a young lad, is suffering from some type of paralysis. And Jesus agrees to heal him. But the key to it all comes in verse 8, is his response. You see his response? He says, he says but, but the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Right in the face of Jesus' authority, this man knows that his authority pales in comparison. He, he believed Jesus' word alone, even if it was uttered from a distance. Perhaps, perhaps the dude's like five kilometers away. That was enough to heal his servant. Now contrast that attitude. This is an outsider, remember. Contrast that attitude when Jesus raises a dead guy, Lazarus, dead for three days. If you have a King James Bible too, one of the ladies that's there with Jesus says, Lord, he stinketh. Right? Because he would stink. He's dead. He's deader than dead. He stinketh, right? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Like, if, if we were to, if that were to happen today, I promise you, there's just a small handful of people in here. If I were to raise someone from the dead, this church would be full, right? No one would bother coming to the Prezies anymore. Just kidding. <laughs> No, no one would go to Evie. They'd come here, you know, because I'm raising the dead. But how do the religious leaders, how do they respond? We're going to kill this bloke. We've we, we got to kill this guy. That's amazing, isn't it? He raised the dead. And they go, we've got to kill this guy. We've got to get rid of him. Shows you how hard man's heart can be, right? But now contrast that with this Roman centurion. His heart is one to say, he's, he approaches him, Lord, Lord. I mean, he, he's a Roman officer, an enemy of the Jewish people, and yet he understood that Jesus had the authority to heal his servant. He gets it, you see. He gets it. And notice how Jesus responds in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This guy, this centurion, wasn't reared in a Jewish home where he was catechized, as it were, with good Jewish. Old Testament doctrine. He wouldn't have had any clue, but and yet it's fascinating. It's fascinating that he gets it. And you know what's also peculiar is when you look at Luke's account, because Luke also gives an account of this event. But Luke is writing with an agenda. 
he's writing historically, but he's giving his spin on it. Same with Matthew. Listen carefully. I'm going to read Luke. I'm going to read Matthew. See if you can distinguish the two. It's just, it's just one little nuance, but I think it's important. In Luke 7, 9, it says this. Just listen. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. You see, Luke seems to suggest that there might be great faith in Israel, perhaps just a handful, but there's a chance, there's a slim chance that there might actually be this kind of faith. But this guy's faith really stands out, but there's a slim, you guys follow me? There's this little slim chance that there's a handful of people. Now look down at Matthew 8.10 and see if you can hear the sweeping indictment on Israel. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel. Do you see the difference? Oh, you know, there might be a handful of people, nobody. One little difference, but I think it makes all the world a difference. I have found, not found anyone in Israel with this, with faith like this. You see the difference? One is sort of saying, here's a guy who wants to help the nation of Israel, etc. And that's what Luke highlights. And Matthew is drawing the conclusion to sort of contrast it with these are the people just like the religious leaders and the Jerusalemites and all the people that should be getting it, and they're not. This Gentile does. R.T. France is helpful here. He says this, talking about this contrast between Luke and Matthew. He says, all this indicates that what for Luke was a story of a good and humble man whose extraordinary request and was granted, is in Matthew more a paradigm for the extension of the gospel of Israel's Messiah to include also those who had no natural claim on him. In other words, the people of God are no longer defined by Jewish ethnicity, but by faith in Jesus. And this really is going to smack you in the face in the next verse. Because what he says is striking. Look at verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, see this here? While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is full on. There's continuity there. Do you know what I mean by that? He's quoting Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are sort of the, remember the big dogs we call them. But then he's also saying there is discontinuity in that there's a new people of God, not defined by just Jewish ethnicity, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And honestly, friends, if this centurion, and Matthew's highlighting the fact that this outsider gets it, what encouragement that is for those of us that have family members and friends that are outside, as it were, that could give a rip about Jesus. That the Lord is in control, and if God so wills, can draw them to himself and save them. 
God is sovereign over their life. He's sovereign over their salvation. What an encouragement that is. I, I have friends and family members, family members right now, who could give a rip about Jesus. And they're dead in trespasses and sins. They're, they're spiritually dead. But my encouragement is, if God so wills to save them and can sovereignly move, he will. It's going to take a miracle. It's going to, it's honestly, it's, it's going to take a miracle. And, and, and you have to believe that, by the way. You have to understand the spiritual condition of someone that's outside of Jesus. You, you, they're not just kind of, oh, yeah, I'm just kind of indifferent, you know, sort of one foot in, one foot out, one foot in. No, 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 no. Either they're regenerated by the Spirit of God, they've been born again, they're actually truly a Christian, or they're not at all. And if they're not at all, you're speaking to a corpse, spiritually speaking. The man without the Spirit cannot accept the things of the Spirit because they're foolishness to him. So you have to pray that God so works and acts miraculously to remove from them a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. God has to be the, the initiator. Otherwise, you just have to convince them that they're humble like you. Right? Or just choose Jesus. But that's not the storyline we see in the Bible. But it's encouraging when you look at the centurion to know that someone so far out is yet drawn in. Right? How encouraging. The last episode that I want to look at here is the mother-in-law, and probably now you're going to think demon-possessed mother-in-law, but don't conflate those two, unless it's your mother-in-law. <laughs> Pick up it with me in verse 14, and we'll wrap this up. And when Jesus e entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Notice the touching again there. Do you see that there? He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. Love that, by the way. Healed and says, yep, I'm serving. I think that's fantastic. Then, evening, uh, then that evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill, remember that's Matthew's phrase that we see that again and again and again. This was to fulfill, right? what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, this is, what this is your homework. Go read Isaiah 53. And those of you that are teenagers, ask your parents if that, what Matthew quotes, lines up with what Isaiah 53 quotes. Those of you that, and, and those of you that are, you know, just friends in here, go read, not now, don't flip there. And now you're tempted to flip there because you are capitalist Westerners. And when I say don't do it, you want to do it. <laughs> right? But later read of Isaiah 53 and compare it because, does Matthew, can I ask you a quote? Does Matthew know his Old Testament? Yeah, I mean, it's the air he breathes, right? And yet, someone's flipping there. And yet, <laughs> that's right. 
and, and yet, what he quotes is actually not what Isaiah 53 says. So what's going on there? It's his own spin on it. So, so either he wasn't paying attention in Sunday school, <laughs> like he didn't pay, pay attention in Dan's class, an impact zone, should have. Or, or perhaps could it be that Matthew, when he draws from the Old Testament, and we've seen this happen before, has a whole context in mind. Because in Isaiah 53, you have the famous, what's called the suffering servant, pointing to Jesus. And the suffering servant ultimately is someone who dies vicariously in the place of the nation of Israel, who then becomes the church, by the way, the people of God. And it's interesting because I'd encourage you to actually go read all of Isaiah 53 and ask yourself, why is Matthew quoting that? And if I read the whole chapter, what's sort of the flow of it? Because I think that's what Matthew's doing. He's, when I say one little phrase, it triggers your imagination to a bigger phrase. Like, for example, Aussie kids are what? Yeah, that's right. But, it, but, it, but if, if I said that in America, people would say, Aussie kids? They'd probably say it with an S. Aussie kids are what? Kids? I don't know. They wouldn't say Weet-Bix kids. Okay, here's another one. Which bank? Commonwealth. If I said that in Canada or Ireland, people would go, which bank? I don't know. Bank of America? Wells Fargo? But you have a, you have a cultural encyclopedia that m it makes sense of that. When I say which bank commonwealth, when I say which, so does someone living in the first century. When Matthew quotes from Isaiah 53, they have the whole enchilada in their mind. That's a San Diego phrase. <laughs> they have the whole, you know what I mean by that. They have the whole thing in their mind. So go back and see and ask yourself, okay, what is the Messiah doing? It's talked about in Isaiah 53. What is Jesus doing here that Matthew's saying, there's a connection here? So, so go do that. And, and again, don't just take it like fool's gold and say, yeah, hey, it's in red. I, Jesus said it. I believe it. But, you know, like just go ask it. Look at, look at the Bible. Ask yourself if, if this is lining up and, and what Matthew might be doing here. He is a healing Messiah, though. Th this, this healing is not the point in and of itself. Casting out of demons, the healings, it's pointing to something greater, a greater deliverance, a greater healing, and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus didn't come just to be a miracle worker, right? He's not just some guy that's going to show up and say, all right, what's the one thing I'm on about? Got to heal everybody. They're pointing to who he is. And who is he? He's the suffering servant, the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. They're pointing to something beyond just the miracles themselves, but to the Savior. And I hope that you see that. Hopefully you see the compassion of our Lord here 
reaching out, touching the leper, drawing those who are outside. I, I, I hope that when you read this, your mind is drawn to the sweetness of our Lord and you can rest, as you think about Isaiah 53, you can rest in who Jesus is and be satisfied with that and not say, boy, I wish this stuff was happening today. Or how come I don't see more of this happening today? But you can say, what's the picture of the Lord here that Matthew's trying to put up for us, as it were? The healing, caring, loving, shepherding Messiah. And he's a Messiah because he dies in the place of sinners. Friend, if you're here today, and you've come to church perhaps for a long time. But maybe it's sort of clicking. Maybe as, as, as Dan last week was even talking about this idea of what does baptism mean and what, why do we take the Lord's Supper? Maybe, you're, maybe you're, it's something stirring in your heart and you're thinking, look, I don't know if I'm actually a Christian. I don't know if I've embraced this Messiah. I'd encourage you, where will you go? Where will you go to embrace that truth. Are you putting that off? Is this something that you've, you, you just, you sort of hear that every week and you go, yeah, yeah, look, not now. When? When are you going to come to Christ? Today could be a day to do it. You, you just don't know. You don't know. You're not guaranteed that you're going to live tomorrow. It's confusing in a Western society because, you know, hey, Aaron Affair will be open tomorrow and subway still open and you know lights come on we have electricity and running water and we just think that that's going to perpetuate itself but everyone in this room is going to die have you embraced this savior has he healed you of your sins do you know that with confidence could you honestly stand before god one day and if you were to say why should i let you into heaven what would you say Think about those things, friends. Come to Christ today if, if, if you're not sure you know this healing Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, again, thank you that this is a gathering of people who are here to worship you. And Lord, it's sweet to look into your word and, and, and to get a snapshot of of the Lord Jesus and his compassion and help us to be people that are also compassionate as well to the outsiders. Lord, if those that are here that haven't been cleansed of their sins, Lord, they're still sitting in, in, in condemnation, Lord, would you grant them repentance and faith? Even now, would they, or would you push them over the line as it were, change them, convert them, Grant them new life. And we pray, Lord, that as a church, that we would look to you who is compassionate. And Lord, we want to share this awesome news about the healing Messiah who not only performed miracles way back when, but can heal people of their ultimate need. And that is for those that need to be forgiven of their sin. So Lord, may we, may we be people that really are excited to go do that and to share that good news with others. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here...